Hello, and welcome to the TV Movie Rewind Podcast with Matt, or Matt Out of Hell, and Todd. I like it. I like it. Matt Out of Hell. That, that works very well. Hi, everyone. Yes, today we are talking about the 1984 Walter Hill, I'm going to call it a masterpiece, Streets of Fire. I am a huge fan of Walter Hill as oh, yeah. a director. He's... <laughs> Second only to John Carpenter, in my opinion, and I can't believe we're only just now getting to a Walter Hill movie. So you've heard of, you've heard of this guy before? Has he done anything I would know? Uh, yeah, you've probably heard of The Warriors, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Extreme okay. Prejudice, oh, 48 yes. Hours. Fair enough. Another 48 Hours. That one too, S- yeah. Southern Comfort. Oh, very good. Maybe you know Hard Times with... Uh, Charles Bronson and James Coburn. Fantastic. I think I... Oh, foreshadowing? Possibly. Okay. Possibly. But Streets of Fire, I mean, this is... I mean, it was a box office bomb. He wrote... No, he wrote Alien. Suppose, I mean, at least he's credited with the screenplay, right? Well... Or is that Dan O'Bannon? Because I've always been confused on how all that worked. Dan O'Bannon wrote the original story and the original screenplay... Walter Hill and somebody else added the idea of there being an android amongst the crew that was not in the original screenplay. Oh, really? So the addition of the character of Ash is credited to Walter Hill. So no insignificant contribution. I mean, yes, sir. No, it really depends on who you ask. You can't I mean... ask Dan O'Bannon because he's dead, but he would say it was a he disagrees with it. He disagrees with the idea entirely. Yeah, he wasn't. He didn't think it was necessary. I mean, I, I you know, that's is it necessary to the story of the Xenomorphs? No, I, I suppose not. But it always did add an interesting twist, even if it was, even if it did lead to not some great movies. Yes, yes. But Walter Hill, you know, he's he's a producer, he's a screenwriter, he is a director. You know, just like John Carpenter has has, has done all those things. Got you. Now, Streets of Fire, 1984. And obviously I've uh, heard of them. I, you know, I was just playing along. <laughs> this is this was a movie made for an MTV audience. Yeah. I mean, by 18, 1984, MTV was at the height of its powers. And this movie is really an extended music video. Yes. From start to finish. It's got all the flash, the glamour. It's And it's... I mean, it starts right off telling you that it takes place in another time, another place, a rock and roll fable. Now, you uh, do you know exactly how close this was to being um, a Star Wars uh, story like spec script? Um, because uh, as, as far as I know, that was originally supposed to be, you know, in a galaxy far, far away, right? No, uh, it, it was basically he was trying to put it so he could do any type of style and mesh a bunch of different genres all into one film without really having to explain. Like, for instance, as, and as we get into the story, we'll explain more. I mean, the pivotal plot point of the movie is a famous high profile rock star is kidnapped. Right. And a hero has to go after her as opposed to, you know, the police or the FBI. Right. Because this exists in a a completely alternate reality. 
Right, where it's almost like, um, even though it takes place in a very urban setting, it's almost um, like a frontier. It's almost like a Western kind of style where it's like these, you know, almost two warring factions that it's, it's just accepted that they openly fight, but as long as they're in each other, you know, as long as they stay in each other's lane. It's definitely a Western in that everybody has different territories yeah. and, you know, there's no overarching police. You know, the police that are in charge of one section of the city or cities are not, you know, it's out of their jurisdiction what happens elsewhere. Right. This is a Western music fantasy. It's, like I said, it's a mishmash of genres. And, like, it, it not only blends, it blends different times and styles and and genres. Not, not a musical per se, um, although there's an awful lot of music in it. But it's, you know, right. part of the, it's part of the movie. Like, she's a it's singer. Part of the, you know, there's a yeah. lot of singing in it. Um, it, they don't just randomly break out into song as they're right, and let's, as they're doing their thing. Let's talk about that for a minute, right? The the music done by uh, Jim Steinman. Jim Steinman wrote two songs for this movie. Um, Roy uh, Roy Cooter did uh, the score, mm -hmm. but yes, Joe Jim Steinman. Everybody knows him from, but most famously for writing the music for Meatloaf, in particular his Bad Out of Hell album. Mm -hmm. He also wrote the songs Total Eclipse of the Heart, and oh, there was a Celine Dion song that's escaping me from the moment. But you know, he he writes these operatic rock ballads, right? Like if if Wagner wrote rock and roll music. This is what it would sound like, right? Like lot, lots and, of. I'm sorry. Yeah the, the the opening song basically nowhere fast is just it's just a, a fist pumping toe st foot stomping power anthem. Oh I, yeah, I love it. I it's cheesy. It's over the top. It is so 80s that you know all of a sudden you look down and you're like I'm wearing a neon shirt. What's going on? <laughs> right. Right, um, no, no, Steinman rules, man, and and the music in this absolutely rules. It's a lot of, um, and in this movie, it's no different. But like, you know, it's a lot of songs where like it's a lot of singing off into the while staring off into the middle distance with your fist kind of in the air, you know. Um, obviously, I mean, you must have heard Total Eclipse of the Heart. If you haven't, then I, I'm sorry, but um, you know, it, yeah, it's it's great, it, it's great, and and um, everything in this movie is just. There's a lot of like, I mean, it's it's Walter Hill, right? And um, and and this this is where he's just he's just got such great visual appeal, where the colors kind of pop off the screen in almost a comic book style. Um, uh, you know, it's it's almost like a graphic novel in in scenes in this movie, and, and even with like the wipes, you know, well, almost reporting that. It was fully intended to be a comic book movie, not based on any actual comic book. Yeah, and it and it really feels it like that's the and that's what I like about this movie a lot is it really leans in hard. Like once once it's established that like you know don't think about don't think about reality. This is not a true story. You know, you, you it leans hard into it. It's great. You fully have to accept that it is another time and another place. Right. And I don't think rock and roll, I don't think fable is quite the right word because it's not really teaching a lesson. I think he probably wanted to call it a rock and roll fantasy, but didn't want to get, you know, in trouble with. Uh, that makes sense. You know, he didn't yeah. want bad company coming over. Sure. Yeah, you don't want bad company. 
Um, but this is like this is a this is a western that takes place in the eighties if the fifties never ended. Right. Yeah. There you go. And there again, you, go. you if you haven't seen the movie, I've said a bunch of gibberish. But if you have seen the movie, you're like, yeah, that, yeah, that's it. That's exactly it's a, right. It's a western that takes place in the nineteen eighties if the fifties never ended. Right. This would, yeah. Um, oh, it's so good. <laughs> because it's it's clearly kind of the 80s, but there's a 50s aesthetic to everything. You know, a lot of the people, like the biker gang is is out of the 50s. Oh, certainly, yeah. It's like, like the Roadmasters is a 50s greaser style gang. All the cars are very 50s style. Um, some of the clothing is 50s style. Mm-hmm. But and and they obviously have you know the eighties technology as well, but there's like I said, there, it's almost like a feudal society, right? Right. Like I I really think of it like again I really think of it as a western. Um, it's it's very because it's like what you have where or, or at least you know again the idea was basically each town or neighborhood or precinct or whatever um, almost right have their own like feudal. Like you never really see who's really in charge, except it's basically the police. And if you, in most cases, pay them off, then you're you're good type of deal. But each side like kind of wars with the other, but not necessarily openly, but also kind of. It's, well, it's very interesting. That's the other thing is our hero, Cody, Tom Cody, played by Michael Pere, mentions that, you know, he fought in the war. But we don't know which war, whether it was recent, whether right. it was a Korea, while ago. World War II, right, exactly. Or, or whether it was a war with the neighboring town. And now, right. you had mentioned earlier, like, about, you know, it being like Star Wars. This was planned, hoped to be a trilogy of adventures starring Tom Cody. No way. Unfortunately, like I said, the movie did not do well. So any type of, of sequel was just, you know, wasn't worth going after right now let's 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 get into the story yeah the story opens with diane lane who is just stunning in this movie. i mean diane lane is an attractive woman anyways but she is she's she's full rock starred out as mm-hmm. she plays a rock star ellen aim who is from the poor area of town that most of this movie takes place in and she's become a famous rock and roll singer Um, Billy Fish played by Rick Moranis is her manager in the most in the most um, Rick Moranis role ever really (laughs) well yeah I mean but he's amazing no he's fantastic in this but it's just it's so interesting his the way it's it's so interesting to see him as this role because it's just you don't really get to see him like this no, no. And, and, you know, they basically come back to this section of town and he's against it because, you know, he's even saying, oh, none of these people have a pot to piss in. But, you know, she's from here. So she wanted to do like a concert for her hometown. Right. And the, the, as the movie starts kicking in, the song uh, Going Nowhere Fast is playing. You know, it's, it's playing over as we meet we see different people going into the show and then it kicks right into the concert and Ellen Aim and the attackers hit the stage. And little did these people know that when they paid to see Ellen Aim and the attackers, they were going to get Ellen Aim and the attackers because Willem Dafoe 
rides into town with his motorcycle gang or motorcycle army because there seems to be nearly a hundred of these guys riding in. And during the show, they take the stage, beat up the performers and kidnap Ellen Aim and cause basically a riot. We we get to see uh, Bill Paxton in an early role who plays Clyde, a bartender, but he's at the show and he tries to help out and, and, and save Ellen Aim, but he gets beat up by uh, Lee Ving, who we mentioned was in the uh, our movie from last week. He yes. played an axe murderer. Now he plays Willem Dafoe's top lieutenant in the motorcycle gang. Again, lead singer of Fear, the band Fear. And he beats beats up, you know, he gets to beat up Bill Paxton and they ride out of town with Ellen Aim held captive. And again, you think, well, why don't the police just go after him? Well, once they were out of Richmond, which was this what's called this town is called, the police, you know, we got a good cop in charge, but they've gone out of his jurisdiction. There's there's nothing he can do. Now that's again that whole scene right there is straight out of a western. Um, like just picture it in your head, you know the sepia tones, the, uh, the except it's you know twinkling um, piano music and uh, a singer, or even think Tombstone, right? Um, where you have the outlaws like enamored with the uh, local star, and, and and granted it didn't work out the way it does in this movie, you could totally see the story going that way. You know, they have to rescue her from the greedy, drunken, you know, cowboy that came in and stole her away. So it's a or lot of those you, themes, but with some great 80s, you know, meatloaf-esque music. Or, or the opening of Double Dragon video game. Yes, final, actually. Yes, that's exactly final, right. Uh, final Fight, which yeah. features a Straight character. Straight up, it's Double Dragon. Yeah. Or Final Fight, because Final Fight features a character named Cody going after his kidnapped girlfriend. Huh. Okay. So... Reva, who is another one of our main characters, played by Deborah von Valkenberg, who you will know from the Warriors. She played Mercy. Yep. And the, uh, the, not, I don't know exactly what role she would be, but she was with the orphans. She started off in the in the scene with the orphans, and ends up with the Warriors. Yep. So. She writes off a letter to her younger brother Cody, who was Ellen Ames boyfriend years ago before she became famous and ended up with Billy Fish. And this is where, like, I I believe Ellen, uh, Diane Lane is playing a character older than she actually is. And Michael Perret is playing a little bit younger than he actually is because Diane Lane was 18 at the time of this movie. Okay. But she's, she's definitely playing like a, some, a girl who's at least in her mid twenties. Right. Right. Mid to early twenties, right? So and, he he and, comes. I'm sorry, yeah, and, and there's and like here you have the montage of of how um, Reva is sending the letter with the telegraph, even the train. Um, yes, like I, I mean, they were totally. They, I mean, I know I keep bringing it up, but it's almost like scene for scene. Um, they were just evoking like a John Wayne movie here, and well, like Ra is John he, Wayne. He wanted to do. He even comes in in a duster coat. Yeah, you know he. The, the, it, Walter Hill has even said almost every movie he's done has basically been a Western. Oh, really? So he comes in and Reva runs a diner and he comes in and he's sitting down. And that's when the Roadmasters show up. Yes. 
And the Roadmasters are your technical greaser bad boys coming in in their, you know, 50s car. And they, they bang through the doors. And Reva's all like, jeez, um, you know, you guys make an entrance. And they're playing all tough. And I love this line where, well, we're the Roadmasters. And we're hungry. And when the Roadmasters are hungry, they eat. <laughs> And when we're thirsty, I mean, this is, but you expect him to say after that, and when we're thirsty, we drink. And when we're sleepy, we go to bed. They're a one step at a time type of gang. <laughs> exactly. don't, let, let's not get too far in advance. We don't think, you know. So they make a scene, and that's when Cody steps in and, right. and just, you know, this is cool. One of them flashes a butterfly knife, and Cody slaps them around and beats them all up, and because it's a fight, they get thrown through plate glass windows and chased off. I mean, it's a diner. Yeah. And she even, she even mentions, like, because Cody basically claims their car as they run away. And he's like, how do you like my new car? And his sister's like, great, why don't you sell it and buy me a new window? Right. So we set up that, like we said, Tom Cody's the ex boyfriend of Ellen Aim and she's trying to convince him to go into the battery which is where she's by Raven uh, Willem Dafoe as Raven and his gang the Bombers. And his pants. We'll get to the pants. Okay. So uh, he's a little hesitant to go because you know his ex-girlfriend and it's a dangerous mission and he goes to the bar and he gets together, you know, he meets Clark again, played by Bill Paxton, playing, you know, another Bill Paxton role. Yep. That's where we meet Amy Madigan, who is also a former soldier. This was a role originally written to be for an overweight man. Okay. Amy Madigan came in to, I believe, read for the part of Reva but was more interested in the part of it was, it becomes McCoy. She plays the character McCoy, but it was originally called Mendez or something. And it was written for an overweight, you know, former soldier who would be Tom Cody's buddy and sidekick. But she was more interested in it. She read for the role and people liked the idea. So she becomes, you know, the tag along partner of Tom Cody. Interesting. They go meet up with Billy Fish, and they're going to get $10,000 to go rescue Ellen Aim from the bombers. But Billy Fish has to come along and be their guide because Billy Fish was originally grew up in the battery. Mm-hmm. And while Rick Moranis gets smacked around and he isn't willing to doesn't want to go into the battery because it's dangerous. He doesn't want to put his life on the line. But when push comes to shove, he's not a coward. No. He talks back to Cody. He talks back, you know, sometimes he, he lets his mouth run off when it shouldn't. But he's not a cowardly, timid person. He's more of a, I know if I go into the battery, I'm going to get killed, so I'm not going to go into the battery. Right. But with along with McCoy and with with Cody and McCoy, they go into the battery to conduct their rescue mission. And one of the things you'll notice is in this movie, you're never going to see Sky. Right. 
this it's it's it all takes again the the aesthetic of even the city is kind of a timeless 50s meets the 80s look and most of it was filmed under a tarp they tarped over this hollywood back lot to keep it in the dark oh that's how they did it okay yeah, it was all uh, it was all filmed in a Hollywood backlot. Some of it was filmed in Chicago with with the L trains, right? To get to get those shot, but most of it was filmed in a, in the studio backlot at Universal. Oh, cool. So they go into the battery, and again, this was a conscious decision by Walter Hill, where he wanted the movie to be action packed but not necessarily violent. And what we get for the rescue scene, oh, well, they get to the battery and they find out, well, even Rick Moranis has said before that they're going to be holding Ellen Aim in a bar called Torchies. (laughs) Now, you may know Torchies was also the name of a bar in 48 Hours. Little little callback, little, little meta callback. And well, they they meet a bum played by the always great Ed Bagley Jr. Oh yeah, who confirms that yes, that they are holding Ellen Aim in torches. And while Billy Fish waits in the car to pull up to the rescue, as McCoy and Cody go in, and while they're heading there, we also get the we 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 get two great rockabilly songs. Like we get '80s music, we get doo-wop 50 style music and we get like old school rock and roll rockabilly played by a band called the blasters <laughs> and they do two great songs one's called one bad stud the other one is blue shadows and while they're doing what bad stud there's a dancing girl dancing on the bar she was the woman who did all the real dancing for jessica beale jennifer jennifer beale Oh, Flashdance. Yes. Yes, Jennifer Beale, Flashdance, Jessica Beale's... Seventh Heaven? Married to Justin Timberlake. Yes, Seventh Heaven. Yeah. Um, so you, you get this, you know, you get the sense that, you know, Torchies is this rough and tumble biker bar, and Ellen Ames tied up to a bed, and in walks Willem Dafoe as Raven in what can only just be described as leather waders. He's not wearing a shirt, just these chest-high leather waiter pants. I there was a flood in the basement he had to take care of. He was just I'm not sure. It's just the most ridiculous pants you've ever seen. And but, he's he's like you said he's not wearing a shirt. Those things seem super chafy. Well, they don't seem remotely comfortable to me. <laughs> the scowl on Willem Dafoe's face still awesome makes him kind of he he is at an he's eleven. Like, yeah, he goes from he's one peak to evil 11. in this. Yes, yeah. at, at, like when he goes into L and A, he basically explains like, "I'm sorry, I just get excited about pretty girls. You're just going to be my girlfriend for a while, and right, you know, you'd be nice to me, and after a while, I'll let you go." If these guys ever team up with Luther and the Rogues, you're in trouble. But when when he's like when he's talking to Ellen Aim, he's 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 at a two or a three. Right. But when he's giving commands to the gang, he is at an eleven. He's awesome. He's awesome. Yeah! And, and, 
Wow. And, I mean, he just full on. And that's probably how he runs this this gang of uh, heathens, we shall call them. I, I wonder if he called back any part of this role when he was doing um, the Green Goblin. Possibly. You know? Because um, the way he just switches gears like that, no, he's he's. I mean, he's he's a great actor, but he's he's no no less so in this. He's really fun. So he leaves Elaine tied up to the bed, and he goes to a poker game. And McCoy goes in and basically holds them up while you know she gets involved in the poker game. Pulls a gun to hold everybody. You know, like everybody keep calm. Cody goes in and rescues Ellen. They make their way out of the bar. He puts Ellen and McCoy and Fisher in the car, tells them to drive off. He's going to hold off the gang. And he basically does this by blowing up their motorcycles while they're riding them. Yeah. You don't see him shoot anybody. And at one point, Billy Fish had even said, like, you start killing bombers, it's really going to come down on us. And he says, I don't have to kill anybody, but motorcycles don't run so good when you shoot holes in them. Right. So he's shooting, you know, causing explosions, setting things on fire, blowing up the bikes with the guys on them. But nobody is obviously hurt. It was, like I said, a conscious decision by Walter Hill for that not to happen. And... He grabs a motorcycle, and at just as he's about to take off, through the flames comes Raven in his waiter pants, and you can see the flames reflected off these these leather or whatever they're made out of. Right. And it's a little hard to take seriously because of the <laughs> way he's dressed. Yeah. But it's you know it's it's and the, and a lot of the dialogue in this movie isn't very good it's cheesy yeah you know i'll be coming for her and i'll be coming for you and cody's reserves and i'll be waiting well okay then should we do it around noon should we have lunch should i you I'll know bring pizza yeah. you know and then cody roars off in his motorcycle to catch up with them now, as he catches up with the rest of them, he says they have to ditch the car because Billy Fish is like, this is great. All we have to do is drive for a few more hours and we're out of the battery and we're fine. But Cody's like, no, we got to ditch the car. And while it isn't well explained at that point, it's clear that the law enforcement of the battery is also corrupt and basically run by the bombers. Right. So they have to ditch the car and find another way out of town. They do. They're walking along. It not be noticed, but they've got world famous rock star Ellen Ain with them. But the only person who notices a girl who goes by the name Baby Girl, played by Elizabeth Daly. And you'll know Elizabeth Daly from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. She played Dottie, the girl who had the crush on Pee Wee. She's also a singer and actress and. She was. Uh, she had a brief role in Better Off Dead, where she played a singer. There, she recognizes Ellen Ain, and she. Comes That's along. where I recognized her from. Sorry to interrupt you like that, but that's it was bugging me where I knew her from, and I um I didn't get a chance to look it up. But Better Off Dead, that's where I knew her from. Thank you. She she actually sings the song "I'd Be Better Off Dead Than to Live Without You." Right. 
Right. So she joins up as their, you know, local knowledge scout. And as they make their way out, they, they have to basically hijack a van with a doo-wop band in it. And in the doo-wop band, you get actor Stoney Jackson and actor Pete Townsend. They play a band called the Sorrells. And Cody basically forces their way onto the bus and as they're trying to make it out of town, they, they make a road, meet a roadblock by the corrupt cops. And we get another action sequence as first Billy Fish tries to pay them off. And the lead cop in the scene is played by great character actor Peter Jason. And Peter Jason it not only appears in 12 Walter Hill films, he appears in seven John Carpenter films. Right. So this guy's got a great filmography to, to rest his laurels on. Sure, sure. And um, so the Sorrells are um, also Robert Townsend, uh, the comedian, and Michael T. Williamson, by the way. Who did I say? Uh, you said Pete Townsend. Which, oh, Pete Townsend. Which, would have, been, which no. would have been amazing, by the way. But uh, totally no, Robert Townsend, yeah. who's also amazing and an I'm 80s sorry. icon, for sure. Yes, Robert Townsend. And uh, Michael T. Williamson. So um, they finally make, uh, basically, you know, they finally make it back to Richmond. And the next day, Raven drives into town and talks to, we'll call him the sheriff, but he's the chief of police. And Raven says, look, I want to kill Tom Cody. I want to nail his head to the boardwalk to let people know that the bombers are the kings around here. And what I want you to do is just make sure Cody's there in the street and it's me and him. I'll only bring two of my guys with me to show you I'm a nice guy. But you make sure Tom Cody's here to fight me. And then he leaves. So Chief of Police Ed um, goes to Tom Cody and as it's a Western, basically says, I got to run you out of town. I need you out of here. If you're not here, there's no fight. And I'll just handle Raven and his two guys. Tom Cody tries to make good on that. Uh, there's there's a yeah. little, there's a lot more to it, but he tries to get out of town. Raven shows up for the fight, and when he realizes Cody isn't there and the police are going to try to arrest him, he presses this air horn, and the army of bombers come swinging in with all sorts of, you know, heavy weapons and everything. He said he could get guns. He said he could get guns. Tom Cody shows up because the bombers had basically prevented him from escaping by setting the railroad tracks on fire. And he, he basically asks, you know, the driver, how come he can't go back? And I always thought this was a scene from the Warriors, because the same thing happens in the Warriors. The gang sets the tracks on fire so the trains can't go. And who's running this train but the DJ from the Warriors? Right. Also, Chief from Where in the World is the Carmen San Diego game show, if people oh, yeah. remember that. So he gets back just in time to, you know, honor the, the duel with Raven. And the police uh, chief of police even looks at him and was like, well, my plan went to shit. Let's see what you got. Kick his ass, Cody. And Raven, you know, very sensibly wants a mano-a-mano duel with sledgehammers. Sure. 
So now we get a duel with sledgehammers. And this is kind of a Walter Hill type thing, too, because in Bullet to the Head, the end duel is with fire axes, but it's very similarly choreographed. Right. Tony of Tony. Cody, of course, beats Raven. Raven is picked up by his motorcycle crew. They drive out of town and everybody's happy. And now there's going to be an even bigger concert with Ellen Aim and the Sorrells are going to tour with her and Billy Fish is going to manage them as well. And Cody and Ellen Aim don't get together nope. because Cody realizes he's no good for her. He's better. She's better off with Billy Fish. And he gets in the car and he and McCoy actually drive off together to further adventures that we will never see. Mm-hmm. Would have liked now, to. Like I said, this movie heavily relies on you fully accepting this is an alternate reality. Right. But it is, and it's just so stylish. It's a fully realized one, yeah. It, it's, Yes. And I think that's part of the reason this failed at the box office because I don't think people fully accepted it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you might be right. I mean, it's certainly, it's certainly got all the style that it would possibly need. Um, the I, writing, I, like you said, it's not necessarily award-winning, but it's not bad either. Um, and you know, it's it's well acted through. Um, I don't really know exactly why it necessarily failed either. Like, I, I guess you're right. Like, I guess like you, I feel it's just, was just too weird for people. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe they just couldn't really invest into it. I, I don't really know. I, I think what might've helped because all we get for exposition is like I said, it opens up with the title, uh, you know, in another time, in another place, mm-hmm. a rock and roll fable, maybe a bit more of an opening title card, explaining things a bit more you know, setting up the world a bit more, because again, or if you don't... at least some you... context to the war at hand, like, like who the bombers are, if nothing else, like, like a yes. tombstone started with the cowboys, you know, right. um, like a little tombstone style. I go back to tombstone, but again, this is Western basically. So yeah, like a little tombstone. Um, was that Sam Shepard? Who, who did the opening? Uh, oh, Robert Mitchum. Robert, Robert Mitchum. Yeah. Yeah. But but at any rate, yeah, a little background, if nothing else, of the bombers and like you know these two towns are fighting or whatever. Because I, I get the impression, and I mean, and I, and I mean happily so, but I almost get the impression like this entire universe is just these two towns. Now, presumably not because she's been touring wherever else, but it almost feels like it. Like this entire universe is just these two towns existing well, in like a plane of the of a void. You know, again, if you think about the the West and how there were just these towns separated off on their own by a void of were, prairie, yeah, yeah, they were pretty much fully autonomous. Autonomous, and and I saw that at least one of the sequels would have been called The Far City. Oh, neat! Which kind of sets into your mind like there's another, you know, whole like almost like a feudal, yeah, a feudal society, if you will. Totally, yeah, yeah. Um, it's a really neat, again, it's a really neat premise. I really wish they would have, um, it's too bad they couldn't have expanded on it. Now we broke the format a little bit here because this is a movie I grew up watching, but yeah, not you, you, this is, you've only just watched it again and only for the second time. At least the only for the second time I can definitely verify. Like I, I suspect I might've seen it with you once, you know, back in the day, but not in any way that I recalled. Cause I would have certainly recalled if nothing else, Willem Dafoe. And if nothing else is pants, but um, I didn't. No, um, 
I just don't. I, I think it was a movie that just kind of came and went, and I just didn't really notice. Like I guess most other people. Well, I guess it bombed at the box office, but it played on HBO almost nonstop. Mm-hmm. And it, like I said, this is basically an extended music video. Sure. As if you know, if you remember music videos from the early '80s. They kind of told a story, but they were stories set in their own world and they were very nonsensical. And that's really what we see here. I don't think this movie would have existed if MTV wasn't such a popular thing. No, you're probably right. And um, I'm trying to remember exactly when Meatloaf would have been at the height. And I guess it would have been through the 80s, but maybe later on. Well, he was popular. But then again, he was writing other stuff, uh, Jim Steinman. So, yeah, it, it um, and I think Total Eclipse of the Heart probably definitely goes back to 84. But, um, yeah, I, I, it's too bad. Like, in hindsight, and, and like you said, it's, it's gaining a cult following. Um, in hindsight, it's it's almost like, this is so unique. Why not make more of them? You know? This is <laughs> a movie... Else. Like this is a movie I saw dozens of times on HBO, and it's a movie that I owned on VHS, DVD, and now on Blu-ray because the Shout Factory Shout Select Blu-ray is fantastic. It's got a great presentation of the movie all on its own, and then there's another disc with a very extensive set of featurettes and a very extensive making of retrospective. I mean, nothing is left uncovered in that retrospective. I learned, I learned a lot. But I mean, this again, it's it's a visual feast, especially. Oh, truly, truly. Um, the closest, uh, I mean, as far as other Walter Hill movies go, uh, the closest I would I would say is like it's very evocative of warriors, but not nearly as grimy or as like angry. Yes, stylistically and visually, it it, it, very, it very much. And I think, again, I think it was a conscious decision by Walter Hill to make this movie PG to appeal to a teenage audience that was watching MTV. Right, right. Um, yeah, so, you know, thank you, Walter Hill. Uh, you've, this is this is one of your, you know, this is, you've made some great movies and this is certainly one of them. Yes, and 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 it's taken a while. This is, you know, a lot of. Usually, it's within twenty years that a movie gains cult following. This has come closer to taking about thirty. More, more and more people are finding it. It's currently on Netflix, and um, I don't know if people know Pat Contry, who is also known as the NES Punk. And he's got his own podcast called the CU Podcast, the Completely Unnecessary Podcast, which he does weekly. He only, the reason I wanted to do this film is because he himself only just discovered it for the first time on Netflix. He was talking about it on his podcast. And I was like, we got to get to this now because it just, I wanted to watch it again. And 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 another thing I got to give a shout out to Pat Country for is it was his commercials, his advertisement he does for the Anchor app is what brought this podcast. So props oh, to neat. Pat Country, and you can also blame him for this podcast too. Right, <laughs> this is entirely on him. Yeah, if you've got issues, send complaints to him. He'll 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 handle it. Yeah. Um. 
that's that's yeah okay so that last okay that's that's really cool no this is such a this is such a fun movie like i think part of the reason why this is ultimately becoming you know well liked and, and is becoming a cult uh, following is because i mean back back when this was made you know it was expensive to see a movie um not everybody had hbo it was expensive to have a vcr uh, you know you might have had to rent it so you had to be really picky and choosy about exactly what movie you were going to see at any given time right um, especially at least if you had options and you weren't necessarily going to pick the movie that bombed at the box office. Um, and where you have now, like you're, you're quite familiar with the major films, the blockbusters. Uh, and in some cases, like, even if you haven't seen them, you know, you, you probably have an idea of what it's going to be. So I think people now just gravitate towards how unique this movie really is like all of the all of the different aspects of it are really finally starting to make sense or you know make sense in that okay i get it he was trying to do something very differently and boy did he and um they pull it off really cool and just such a very unique movie um and 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 i think that's why like it's it took so long to find an audience it's just like i think it just took enough people to 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 be able to actually view the movie and um you know, if I finally see something very, very unique, because this is going to be another tough one where it's like, I don't even know what to recommend. Well, again, like, unlike a lot of movies, I haven't heard this talked about much. No, you know, I don't see, you know, but again, it, it's, it's such a genre. It's such a blend of genres. It also defines genres. Absolutely. So horror fans will always find those obscure horror movies because they're always looking for it, you know, even whereas there isn't a set dedicated because again this isn't really sci-fi it's not really action so it kind of stayed out there in limbo right but one of the things that i think uh people will also appreciate about this movie is even if you don't like it you can still enjoy it because it's just so much like everything at this everything in this movie is just really amped up like there's so much energy to it it's it's and, even if you don't like it i guarantee you'll find it entertaining in some way you know and even if you just you, want to make fun of it you'll be entertained by it you may not fully understand the workings of the universe it takes place in very straightforward oh yeah you know hero rescues kidnapped girl right I, that's i mean that's been done to death you know oh, yeah. it, it, there's it's not hard to all the characters are pretty plain as to who they are i mean like i said even at the end when when raven rides in and he has his entire gang behind him billy fish comes running up to him and saying look stop pushing these people around you know why did you just leave them alone he gets punched in the face for it but you gotta give him credit for running <laughs> to him and 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 standing up to these these well bullies that right that was out of character for a guy who's you know played off through the whole movie as basically being out for himself but, but ultimately he, you see like he is like there's something he's deeper than he seems yes every, almost every character goes through a journey in this movie at least the hero characters sure you know they're all they're they're different because cody is definitely an anti-hero at the beginning Oh, yeah. But by the time the movie ends, he has become a better person himself. Well, he's Shane, you know. Well, he again, he realizes he isn't right for Ellen. Right. And he's willing to go off and, and leave her. I mean, and again, initially, he only did it for the money. Right. 
But right, he, turns, he, he turns the money down because he realized it was the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, so the, everybody comes, the, the heroes through the streets of fire, you know, better people. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, I used to call this movie a guilty pleasure of mine, but I don't feel guilty about it. I no, you shouldn't. love this movie. I mean, it's not in my top 10, but I, I, there are other Walter Hill movies I enjoy more than this one. Like, obviously, Warriors is my favorite Walter Hill. Right. But there, like you said, there really isn't anything else like this movie. No. And, and the reason why, like, to me, a, a guilty pleasure would be something way more derivative and sloppy and almost lazy. And that none of that is true. Well, maybe the derivative part to an extent of the plot of not being, again, like you said, very straightforward. Um but I mean, by that extension, almost every movie, all of them are derivative, right? Uh, if you're just gonna like pick apart the fact that it uses basic plot plot elements, but like this movie is incredibly lovingly made in every way, from the set design to the song to the score to the um, it's just it's just you you have to. I don't know. You have to see this movie to at least, um, or I should say, before you judge the movie, maybe on trailers or whatever, or or like critical reviews. Just just consider how much effort was put into this movie, and I, I don't know. I just appreciate that so much because it just makes it work so well. Now there was an unofficial sequel in two thousand eight called Road to Hell, where uh, Deborah Van Valkenburg and Michael Pore reprised their characters of Tom and Reva Cody, but. It's not an official sequel. I've never seen it. I have tried at least for the past 10 years to find a way to see it, but I have never been able to find a copy on DVD or see it streaming anywhere. And from what I've heard, the people who have seen it say I'm better off not seeing it. I mean, it sounds like it's getting to the point where if you finally do see it, it might kill you or curse you in some way. Like it'll be a haunted DVD or something. So, uh, you know, maybe, but I mean, you'll, I you'll gotta, open it and like, you'll hear screams and like ghosts emanate from it. I, I got to put out there that this, this unofficial, unofficial sequel does exist. And if I ever see it, I will definitely, you know, bring it up. Right. He ain't been the same since the movie. So uh, this is again. This I highly recommend this movie. It sounds like you recommend it as well. Oh sure. I, again, even I, I think it's one of those ones where, um, again, I, like I said before, like it's to me, it's it's so entertaining, it, even even one way or the other. I genuinely did like it. Genuinely did enjoy it. But even if you watch it and you just go, oh, "This is cheesy and dumb." There's so much of it in there that you'll you'll appreciate the dumbness if if you go that way. You know what I I I don't really know if that's a good way of saying it, but I guess what I'm saying is like there's just so much effort put into this movie in such a great way that I I kind of think there's something there for everyone, even people who don't like it to, to appreciate. I I, if, I think it's a fun movie. You pop it in. You you pop you pop some popcorn. You put the movie in, and you just sit back and enjoy. Oh yeah. Um. So. I know you said you, you, I mean, there is, it is hard to recommend something like this film since there isn't really anything like it. No, I mean, it's, 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 you could say Western. Cause I mean, again, I probably mentioned that about 400 times, but I don't know of any other Western with Jim Stein and music. So like, I'm kind of lost here. I mean, obviously a good recommendation would be the Warriors. 
sure. At least, at least visually and 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 story wise, yeah. um, I just for the sake I think of the outsiders. Um, kind of, yeah. That sort of like fifties sort of gang tone, sure. Um, Red Dawn, obviously, but we don't need to even get into that. I mean, we can always recommend Red Dawn. Sure. Um, you know, some uh, other Walter Hill's great films are The Long Riders, which is about uh, the James Younger gang. That's the one with all the brothers in it, like the Keach brothers. That's the 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 brothers playing brothers. You get the Carradine brothers playing the younger brothers. Uh, the James and Stacey Keach playing Frank and Jesse James. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, great casting. Uh, really, really cool movie. Southern Comfort, which is basically a um, a really fun movie. Deliverance meets the Vietnam War, kind of. Uh, His version of Fistful of Dollars, also known as Last Man Standing, starring Bruce Willis and Christopher Walken. I mean, I don't think there is a Walter Hill movie I wouldn't recommend. Oh, my Extreme Prejudice. Fantastic. One of the best action movies ever filmed probably the most underrated action movie out there because it is just a fantastic film. Yeah. Walter Hill. Walter Hill is great. Um, we'll, we'll get through. Cause I think you mentioned several movies that we'll probably end up getting through on this podcast. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I, we definitely got to do more Walter Hill. 48 hours for sure. Or another 48 hours. Or yeah. Although it wouldn't make sense to do. We, we should actually do it in reverse just to mess with people. <laughs> right. All right. Uh, you got anything else to say or to recommend? Uh, no, no, uh, no. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you recommended this one. Um, it's again, like you said, I hadn't seen it in a while. Um, it's not something. I mean, it's, it's again. You saw it way more often than I did growing up, so I definitely understand why it's in your consciousness more. It's, it, it, it doesn't orbit mine as much, but um, I kind of like that because, it, because then when I see it, it's just like, oh yeah, I forgot just how much fun this was. Um, uh, you know, it's it's one of those movies that I gain an appreciation for even more so every time I watch it, almost like Flash Gordon, except I've seen Flash so many times. I don't know if I can appreciate it more than I already do. But here's but one is, that's like what's building. I mean, this is another great movie with a great soundtrack. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and great. Yeah. Great visual. Ever. Yeah. It's, it's just great. So all that's left is to connect this to the Magnificent Seven. And as I mentioned earlier. One of the, the first movie Walter Hill directed was a movie called Hard Times, and it stars both Charles Bronson and James Coburn, who are, of course, in The Magnificent Seven. Yep. Fantastic. Uh, all right. That's going to do it for us. Well, not quite do it for us this week. Also, look out for a short extra episode. Uh, it's only me, but I'm talking since this is Shark Week. I just make some recommendations on some of my favorite shark movies if you're looking for something to watch besides Jaws. Right on. Like Jaws Other, 4. Well, no, I don't recommend Jaws 4. Oh, come on. But uh, other than that, you can find us on Facebook at TV slash movie, one word, TV slash movie, Rewind Asylum. Uh, you can find us on Instagram under movie Matt Sorois, all one word. Two T's and Matt, or under the TV slash movie Rewind podcast on Instagram. And that's going to do it for us this week. We thank you for listening. Thank you.